What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I hope everyone's having an amazing week so far. Whether you're by yourself, whether you're with family or with friends, I hope you're able to relax a little bit and get ready for the new year. That's exactly what I've been doing, and I'm super pumped for everything that we have going on next year. But today, I want to talk about two things. Number one, the LA Dodgers. It's no secret that the Dodgers have been spending more money than anyone else in baseball, signing Shohei Otani, Yoshi Yamamoto, trading for Tyler Glass now and giving him a new contract. They obviously have Freddie Freeman and Mookie Betts and a whole host of other players too. But the questions that I've been getting over the last few weeks revolve more around how they're able to do this, right? Why are no other teams spending money like the Dodgers? What enables them to go out and spend more than a billion dollars on two free agents? So we'll talk through some of that because there are some very interesting dynamics at play here that I think you guys will find fascinating. Number two, we're going to be talking about Michael Jordan's royalty deal with Nike. Now, everyone knows the story about this. He wore Converse's in college. He wanted to sign with Adidas. He ends up signing with Nike. They actually ended up making a movie about it called Air. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it already. But more importantly, Nike has been pushing and expanding the Jordan brand over the last few years, and this business has exploded. That's important, obviously, for Nike, but it's even more important for Michael Jordan, who has a royalty deal with the brand. He's making more money than he ever has before throughout his NBA career, throughout other endorsements and anything else like that. Today, strictly through this royalty deal with Nike, they had their earnings call last week and mentioned a few more interesting things about where this deal is headed and the size that the brand could eventually become. So we'll run through all of that. Last but not least, I think you guys are going to find this stuff fascinating. So let's get right into it. All right, let's start with the Dodgers. So you guys all know what's happened over the last few weeks. They started out by signing Shohei Otani to a $700 million contract. Now, we already talked about this on the podcast, so I don't want to get too far into it, but the $700 million is a little bit deceiving, right? His agent and Otani essentially wanted to screen the loudest number that they possibly could, but at Major League Baseball and the Dodgers, from an accounting perspective, are really valuing this deal around $450, $475 million based on the net present value of the payment today. There's obviously you know, a lot of deferred payments into the future, and if you were to value the payments that he's receiving today with potential interest and everything else. It's a $450, $475 million deal. Still a lot of money, one of the largest in sports history. But they weren't done there. The Dodgers then got even more bold, and they went bigger. They signed Yoshi Yamamoto to a 12-year, $325 million contract. Now, for those of you that don't follow baseball super closely, Yamamoto is a 25-year-old pitcher from Japan, and he has quite literally never played in a Major League Baseball game before. So many people were surprised to see that he got a $325 million contract from the Dodgers. Now, there's a couple things that go into this. Number one, he was expected to get somewhere around $200 million to $225 million. But when you have the biggest markets in baseball bidding all for the same player, and a couple of these teams that had gotten embarrassed over the last year, right? I'm a Yankees fan. The Yankees got embarrassed last year not making the playoffs. So Steinbrenner and Cashman and the rest of the Yankees brass have gone out and they've tried to get aggressive this offseason. They obviously traded for Soto, and now they wanted to acquire Yamamoto to strengthen their starting pitching staff. So when you have teams like the Yankees, you have Steve Cohen with the Mets, you have the Phillies, you have the Blue Jays who just missed out on Otani, you have the Giants who have missed out on Otani and a whole host of other prospects too over the years. When you have those four or five big markets bidding against each other, that number is going to keep going higher and higher and higher. Now, look, many people are saying that Yamamoto always wanted to go to the Dodgers. Otani is obviously one of his friends. They're from the same country. And the idea of them playing together was very enticing to him. 
Maybe that's true, and maybe he used the other teams as a stalking horse to get more money out of the Dodgers. I don't know that to be true, but if it is, it's a smart move by him and his agent. The Dodgers ended up giving him the largest contract for a starting pitcher in Major League Baseball history. Now, again, this number is a little bit deceiving. It's not deceiving because there are deferrals. No, he's getting $325 million over those 12 years. But it's deceiving because it's actually higher. It's more money than the Dodgers reported. And that's because they have to pay a $50 million posting fee to Yamamoto's Japanese team. Now, one of the things that I've gotten questioned about is what is a posting fee? What is the posting system? And the easiest way to explain it is that if a free agent in Japan wants to become a free agent for Major League Baseball before their service time is completed, I believe it's like eight or nine years they have to play in the Japanese league before they come to Major League Baseball. They get posted by that team. And what that means is that they're a free agent, but any of the money that the team pays that player to become part of their team, right? In Yamamoto's case, the Dodgers paying him, goes back to his former team in Japan. That's not part of the contract, right? So the $325 million is all going to Yamamoto, but it's additional to the contract. And it's a sliding scale. So it's X percent up to this number, then it's a smaller percentage up to this number, then a smaller percentage up to this number. There's brackets and it declines the larger the contract gets. But when you do the math on Yamamoto's contract, that includes a $50 million posting fee to his former team in Japan. To give you some context on just how much money that is, his former team in Japan pays all of their players combined less than that $50 million in an annual year. So this is really a $375 million contract to the Dodgers. I say all of this because on those two players alone, not including the trade for Tyler Glass, now which they ended up giving a big contract to as well, those two players, Yamamoto and Shohei Otani, they spent more than a billion dollars on this offseason, about $1.1 billion in total on those two players alone. And that's more than all of the other teams in Major League Baseball combined, right? So the Dodgers are at $1.1 billion so far in free agency. If you added up all of the 29 other teams in baseball, they've spent about $875 million on contracts so far this offseason. Now, we can talk till we're blue in the face about whether the Dodgers are actually going to win this year. When I get asked about this, my general response is that there's much more parity in baseball than people realize. So yes, I agree that it's not great to have super teams. I agree that it's not awesome to have a bunch of the best free agents in baseball all go to the same team, especially if that's not your team, right? Of course, I think many people would say that. And specifically talking about small markets, teams that cannot afford these players, it's super unfortunate for them and those fans who don't get to see these players join their teams. But at the end of the day, baseball is a sport of parity right? We haven't had a back-to-back World Series champion since 1998 and 1999, right? When the Yankees 3 And when you look at the playoffs in general, it's structured so that the hottest teams are the teams that end up advancing, right? The Dodgers were one of, I think, just three teams in baseball last year to win 100 games, and they ended up losing the playoffs to an 84-win Diamondbacks team who ended up getting hot and going to the World Series. Now, that can happen again. Of course, we don't know what is going to happen. Otani's not going to be pitching this year, so that's another thing to look out for with the Dodgers. And we'll see. But the more interesting part about all of this to me is how the Dodgers can afford all of these players. And the reason I want to talk about this is because I think we're seeing the gap between the haves and have-nots in Major League Baseball expand to a level that we have never seen before. Now, let me give you a few examples here. Number one, the Dodgers are owned by Guggenheim. Guggenheim is a massive financial services company. They have $300 billion in assets under management. Now, it's a group of owners, so it's not necessarily Guggenheim, but the owner was the CEO of Guggenheim. A lot of the other partners came from Guggenheim as well, and they created this new division called Guggenheim Baseball Management that owns the team. So financially, they're strapped with a lot of cash to begin with. Number two, they make more money than any other team. I mean, they've led Major League Baseball in attendance for the last 10 years. I think they had 3.8 million people visit games last year. 
So they make a ton of money. Number three, it's really their local RSN, their local media rights contract that's allowing them to do this. So as you guys know, teams make most of their money off media rights. In Major League Baseball, there's the national media rights contracts, right? Where you see Sunday Night Baseball and you see games on Fox and even Apple and other places like that. That's done at a national level. But since there's so many games, 162 games, all of these teams have local media rights contracts that are with their local broadcast partners that allow the people that live in those areas to see all of the games. This is the Yes Network. This is Nesson. This is Sportsnet LA for the Dodgers. Now, the reason why this is so important for the Dodgers is because where all of the other teams are struggling right now because RSNs have faltered, a lot of them are going bankrupt, the Dodgers have one of the strongest deals in all of sports. Now, to give you guys a little bit of context here, they're guaranteed to be paid an average of $334 million through 2038. So over the next 15 years, they're going to get a check on average every single year for $334 million from their broadcast partner for their local regional sports network. The reason why this is so big is because they charge the most for their affiliate fee. They have an estimated monthly average affiliate fee of $6.48 per subscriber per month, right? So if you have Sportsnet LA on your cable bundle in LA, you're paying an average of $6.48 per month for that package. Now, that's more money than anyone else in baseball, except for the Yankees. The Yes Network is slightly more expensive at $7.27, but it's significantly more than the average, right? So again, the Dodgers, their affiliate fee is $6.48 per subscriber per month, which adds up to them getting paid $334 million annually through 2038. But the average for an RSN, for a regional sports network across Major League Baseball, is just $3.53, right? So we're comparing something that's roughly double what the Dodgers get to something that is significantly smaller, about half as big with all of the other Major League Baseball teams. Now, one thing to keep in mind here is that there is revenue sharing across baseball. That's where the teams that make the most money put their money into a pot and half the other teams take money out of that pot to make the teams a little bit more equitable. But that's only about 48% of the revenue. That includes things like ticket sales, regional TV money, concessions, parking, everything else like that that's done on a local level. The thought process behind this is that it takes two teams to make a baseball game. And while that's by and large true, the majority of this money is coming from the biggest markets in baseball, while teams like, you know, we could talk about the Marlins, the Blue Jays, the Brewers, the Rockies, the Twins, the Royals, the Pirates, the Padres, the Indians, the Reds, the Rays, the A's, the Orioles. Those teams have much smaller media rights deals. We'll call it anywhere between $20 million annually to $50 million annually, compared again to $334 million annually, average for the next 15 years. So the Dodgers are making a whole lot more money than the rest of the teams, and that's how they're able to afford some of these players. But another thing to add in here is the type of player that they're getting. There were 70 to 75 million people watching Shohei Otani's press conference introduction. Now, a lot of those people were obviously in Japan. He is very, very, very popular there. And when you add Yamamoto, another Japanese teammate of his that won the World Baseball Classic with his, it makes the country of Japan, you know, their favorite team de facto, the LA Dodgers. So that's obviously incredibly lucrative for the Dodgers. And I can guarantee you right now, the Dodgers sales team is out there trying to negotiate multi-year deals, not just one-year deals, but multi-year deals with different Japanese brands that they can make tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on over the next decade. And I'll give you an example of this. As a Yankees fan, I vividly remember Hideki Matsui. A lot of you probably remember him too, but he played with the pinstripes for a long time. And the Yankees used to make millions of dollars annually off of Japanese sponsors on the outfield signs. His at-bats were sponsored by Benihana, the hibachi restaurant, right? They were making a ton of different money off a bunch of different partners, given his ethnicity. The Dodgers are going to, to do the exact same thing. 
And the best example of this might be the Angels, actually. The Angels say that Otani brought them about $20 million in additional revenue just because of who he was from sponsorships and tickets and everything else like that. Now, he's only moving about 30 miles away to go play for the Dodgers. But if you looked online, you wouldn't have ever known that he was near LA. I mean, they're bringing him out to the Rams game. They're on this big press tour. Everyone's excited. It's like he just arrived in LA. And that just shows you how much bigger the Dodgers are than the Angels. That $20 million number, I could easily see becoming a $50 million number or a $60 million number based on how much bigger the media market is in LA compared to Anaheim. Not only that, the Dodgers had 3.8 million fans at 10 games last year. Again, they've held the number one spot in attendance for the past 10 years, but that will surely cross 4 million fans this year, which would be a colossal number. I mean, that would be absolutely gigantic. You guys have also seen the jersey sales. Now, one of the interesting things with the jersey sales is that the online jersey sales are split between all the teams and all of the players. So Otani and the Dodgers will not make nearly as much money off of that as many people expect. But I would say that it is a leading indicator of the demand that they will see in their stadium stores, which the Dodgers do get to keep the revenue from, right? So online sales get split between everyone else. But when you go to a Dodgers game at Dodger Stadium and you buy an Otani jersey in their merchandise store, that money gets to stay with the Dodgers. So again, there's a whole host of different things that make this possible. But if you had to dwindle down to just a couple different things, I would say, one, they're owned by Guggenheim, who has $300 billion in assets under management. Number two, they make more money than any other team off ticket sales, off sponsorships, off of merchandise and everything else. Number three, these players, we're talking about Otani, Yamamoto, et cetera, are going to bring tens of millions of dollars in additional revenue on top of their league leading revenue already based on who they are, their name, their ethnicity, and so forth. And number four, their RSN, their local media rights contract is absolutely massive. It's a 25-year deal worth $8.35 billion. It averages out to payments of $334 million over the next 15 years, way more than anyone else in baseball, and obviously significantly more than the teams that are making $30, $40, $50, $60 million a year on their local media rights deals. So we'll see what happens. Part of me would love to see a salary floor implemented as part of this to make other teams spend more money like the A's and other teams like that who are quite literally just taking in profits and not putting it back into the roster, not putting it back into the stadiums and not giving it back to the fans. But that might be a pipe dream at this point. There's no indication that Major League Baseball is going to be doing that at any point in the future, although I would argue it would make the product significantly better than it is today. All right, let's take a quick break before we get to our next topic about Michael Jordan and his royalty deal with Nike. All right, let's talk about Michael Jordan's royalty deal with Nike and how these two have worked together over the last few years to build the Jordan brand into one of the world's biggest sportswear companies. Now, I don't want to hash out all the details. We know kind of what happened with Michael Jordan and why he ended up with Nike. He was wearing Converse in college, but when he went to the NBA, he wanted to sign with Adidas. Adidas ended up not signing him because there was a bunch of dysfunction in the brand at the time. He ends up signing this deal with Nike at the behest of his mother. And it goes incredibly well. He gets a signature shoe called the Air Jordan 1. They were projecting to bring in about $3 million in sales over the first three years, or they actually had an out in the contract with Jordan. But instead, Nike ends up doing over $125 million in sales in the year one alone. Fast forward to today, and the Jordan brand is one of the biggest companies in all of sports, irregardless of brand name, brand existence, anything else like that. Now, a few years ago, the Jordan brand in 2018 was doing $2.8 billion in annual sales. The majority of that was coming from shoe. That's what they're known for. But the Jordan brand saw this opportunity to expand on the IP that they built with Michael Jordan over the last few decades. And that's exactly what they've done. They really pushed the brand over the last few years. We're talking more shoes, more releases, more streetwear. 
They're going into golf. They're getting really aggressive with women's clothing and kids' clothing and other categories like that. And as a result, the Jordan brand has exploded. They went from doing, again, $2.8 billion in annual sales in 2018 to $3.1 billion in 2019 to $3.7 billion in 2020 to $4.8 billion in 2021 to $5.1 billion last year. And in 2023, they did $6.6 billion in annual revenue. Now, again, over the last six years, that means they went from doing $2.8 billion in sales to $6.6 billion in sales. Now, they've said that the clothing category is now doing over a billion dollars all on its own, and it's growing by about 20% year over year over year. This is going to be a $10 billion business in the next few years, absolutely guaranteed. Now, the most fascinating part about this, of course, is that Michael Jordan has a royalty deal with Nike. It's said that when you blend all of the agreements together, he takes home about 5% of all sales with Nike. That means he made $330 million in royalties over the last year with Nike alone. To give you some context on just how much money that is, Michael Jordan made about $95, $94 million over his NBA career. $94 million. He's now making nearly four times more than that annually just from his Nike deal alone. Nike also says that the Jordan brand is on a clear path to becoming North America's second largest footwear brand. That means that they would be just behind Nike when it comes to selling shoes, but they would be ahead of Adidas, Puma, New Balance, and everyone else. So let me say that again. Nike says that the Jordan brand, if it was a standalone brand, would be the number two largest footwear brand in North America in the coming years. Ahead of Adidas, ahead of Puma, ahead of New Balance, ahead of Asics, ahead of everyone else in the shoe business in North America. That's how big the Jordan brand has gotten over the last few years. And no one, no one has benefited more than Michael Jordan. Now, many of you, when I tweeted about this and posted about this on LinkedIn the other day, came back and said he needs to thank his mom. And I think there's a little bit of confusion on this, and I don't necessarily want to be the bearer of bad news, but the movie Air is not necessarily accurate. And let me explain. So we all know with Hollywood, specifically with sports movies and movies that are based on true stories, some of the details are incredibly accurate, and some of the details are incredibly inaccurate and are embellished for the screen, right? For the production of the movie and for the enjoyment of everyone else. And the Air story had a lot of embellishments in it. And there's this great post by a guy named Scott Reams. Now, Scott is a Nike historian. He used to work for Nike. He was in charge of keeping the history of the brand and telling its story. And Scott posted after this movie went live on streaming on LinkedIn, and he gave a bunch of details around what is true and what is not true about the movie. So I'm going to read you guys through Scott's post here and give you some context on just what is fact and what is fiction about the movie. And this is for no other reason than I just think it's super interesting about what Hollywood decides to embellish and what facts they decide to keep true. But let's start with the obvious. Did Sonny Vaccaro negotiate Michael Jordan's contract with his mom? In the movie, for those of you that have seen it, many of you will remember that she is very aggressive and she is insistent on him getting a royalty deal with Nike. Now, that in real life is fiction. Neither Sony nor Dolores Jordan was involved in any way with the contract negotiations with Nike. The Nike deal was done strictly by Rob Strasser, who worked for Nike, and David Falk, Michael Jordan's agent. So the idea that everyone is going around saying that Michael Jordan owes all of this to his mom is inaccurate from a pure contract negotiation standpoint. The other part of the movie that is not true is that Sony visited the Jordans in North Carolina, the scene where he pulls up and he talks to them in the backyard. That is inaccurate. He never went and visited them in North Carolina. Uh, he did strongly advocate that Nike sign Michael Jordan. That is a fact. But Nike did not spend their entire endorsement budget on Michael Jordan, like the movie says. In that year, that same year, actually, Nike also signed future Hall of Famer Charles Barkley in 1984. 
They also say in the movie that agreeing to pay royalties on a per shoe sold basis was unprecedented at the time. That's not true. Nike was paying royalties out about a decade before in 1975. They had this agreement called the Nike Pro Club. It was a program that they were running. They were paying incentive-based contracts out about nine years before they did the deal with Michael Jordan. So again, that was not anything new to them. The Nike board also never considered cutting basketball. That was never a topic of conversation. It wasn't something that they were going to do if they hadn't signed Michael Jordan. Sony actually didn't make the presentation either. He was in the room when the Nike presentation was done, but in the movie, they show him basically making the entire presentation. That's not true. That didn't happen. They also visited Nike first, not before Converse or Adidas. They met with Nike first and then went to Converse, and they actually never met with Adidas. Only Michael Jordan's agent, David Falk, met with Adidas. The fine thing was also not necessarily true. They didn't know that the colors were going to draw a fine from the NBA until they were already made. And when in the movie they talk about how they're just willing to pay the fine, the fines were significantly smaller than they lead on in the movie. It was about $1,000 for the first fine. Then the fines eventually bumped up to $5,000 per game. And then the NBA said that they would suspend Michael Jordan if he didn't change the shoes. And that's when Nike capitulated and changed the shoes for Michael Jordan. Now, one of the things that is true in the movie is that his agent, David Falk, coined the term Air Jordan. Obviously, that's become a very important part of the story, and it's one of the main things that has been a selling point over the last few decades for Michael Jordan. So this really shouldn't be all that surprising. I think most of us understand at this point that Hollywood likes to embellish these true life stories to make it better for the audience and a better storyline overall. But the basis of this story is still true. I mean, Michael Jordan signed with Nike. He got this awesome royalty deal, which was largely persuaded by his mother to go to that meeting. And it's become one of the most important, if not the biggest sports business deal in history. They're doing $6.6 billion in annual revenue today. Michael Jordan is taking home $330 million based off his 5% annual royalty. And they're on pace to becoming the second largest footwear brand in North America behind Nike, but ahead of Adidas, Puma, New Balance, and everyone else. There is no reason why Michael Jordan in the near future won't be making half a billion dollars a year on this Nike deal, which to me seems like the best retirement package of all time. That's it for today, though. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you did, please make sure to leave me a five-star review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you are listening to this podcast. Other than that, have an amazing day, and we'll talk later this week.